So if you do a poetry podcast for long enough, sometimes you get sent poetry books in the mail for you to review that you did not choose, but they just show up. Book showed up on my desk a few months ago from Penguin Press. They had kindly sent me a new book of poetry by Anne Lauterbach called Spell. It's her most recent collection. Anne, of course, is a contemporary poet. She's been writing poetry that's been pretty prominent and lauded since the 90s. And flipping through the book, it's been fun to get to know her work. Lauterbach is primarily a free verse poet and even has some prose poems in here. And I usually focus on formal poetry in this podcast, but I came across a poem that's largely in free verse, but it kind of warmed my heart because of its meditation on poetic tradition, stretching back all the way to the ancient. So I wanted to share with you a poem from Spell and recommend that if you like the poem, check out Spell. It's uh, recently been published by Penguin Poets. This is called The Invocation. Bring the huge vernacular. Bring trysts of jealous gods and a girl changed into a tree. And the tree, bring it back or forward into the foreseeable quantum dawn, shielding opalescent fog. Bring days by the road over which cats run into the evening in diagonal cat shapes. Please also send Whitman's ninety sorrowing words from which to choose as I do not, I do not know where the horizon is, located night or day, to furnish with cantilevered messages from creatures yet unnamed in animate gusts, waiting for speech that is a wonder thing. This poem I like to see as sort of happening in two major movements. We have the first half of the poem, which uh, has these references to poetic history very explicitly, and then the diction becomes a little more complicated. It builds to this kind of mysterious conclusion. I want to look at both movements and talk about uh, how they're working. So the title of the poem is Invocation. Now, invocation is a word that we know not only from poetry, but also from religion. When we invoke something, it's, it's to call in. We can invoke another person. We can call them into a communal activity, but we can also invoke God. We can call God down to us, a very dangerous thing to be not taken lightly. The invocation here seems to be a calling forth of elements of history, particularly poetic history. But I think the fact that this has this religious connotation needs to be remembered. There's a religious flavor to all of this. When poets call forth things from the realm of the religious or the spiritual, traditionally it's a muse. Of course, the pagans called upon the nine muses, uh, particularly Calliope, the muse of poetry, though Poets have been known to call on other muses like Cleo, the muse of history. Let's see uh, who or what Lauterbach is invoking here. Bring the huge vernacular, the first line. I love this. Um, vernacular, of course, means the common tongue. And in particular, the tongue that isn't just the language that we all share, but the everyday street language. She calls it the huge vernacular. 
I think of Jeffrey Hill, who we've talked about on this podcast before. There's a line that he likes to quote. I think it's from Swift who talks about the massive truculent English of John Dryden. Huge vernacular, massive English. There's this idea both in Lauterbach and in Hill and Swift that the common language, our English, is weighty. It's, it's heavy, not just with meaning, not just with history, but just with sheer magnitude of speakers. Bring the huge vernacular, she says. So already this poem is going to be interested in common language, both commonness of the street and the commonness of what we all share. Bring the huge vernacular, bring trysts of jealous gods and a girl changed into a tree and the tree. So Trysts of Jealous Gods, all of a sudden we're back, not with vernacular poetry from Dryden through the present, but all of a sudden we're with classical myth. Ovid is the most famous version of the story of the girl changed into a tree. This is, of course, Apollo and Daphne. Apollo takes a liking to Daphne, a mortal Daphne, does not reciprocate Apollo's favor. She runs away and instead of being overtaken by Apollo, the other gods have mercy on her, well, a sort of mercy, and turn her into a tree. This doesn't, of course, work out very well for the tree, but Lauterbach, instead of dismissing the tree, says, bring the tree, right? Bring the tryst of jealous gods and a girl change into a tree and the tree. She wants to preserve the girl even as she's been changed into a tree. And of course, as we know in poetry, trees become very important in early Christian poetry, in more contemporary poetry. We think of the tree of the cross that is made much of both in the New Testament and in early Christian poetry. I think in particular of the dream of the rood in Anglo-Saxon poetry, going all the way up into more contemporary poetry. I think I never have seen a poem as lovely as a tree these lines sort of come into our consciousness from uh, the romantics and forward. And there's this idea that the tree is sort of this ultimate symbol of nature and can even be cliche. We need to say that if, if we're talking about a poem as lovely as a tree, we're in verse that is maybe bordering on, on the sentimental or the overused. But this idea of the vernacular and this idea of old Greek myth, have already brought in these ideas of things that are well-worn, well-used. Lauterbach isn't distinguishing and saying, no, I only want these aspects of poetic tradition. Bring them all. Bring the vernacular. Bring the old gods. Bring the girl changed into a tree. And bring the tree itself in all its connotations, both new and well-worn. Back or forward into the foreseeable quantum dawn, shielding opalescent fog. Now, I like this. This is the kind of thing that we see both in Lauterbach here, but also it's something that Tracy Smith has been doing for the last few years, and you can especially see it in her collection, Life on Mars. This idea that poetry has these old ways of understanding the world, of, of myths, of democratic ideals, of idealization of nature. She's saying bring all of that into the present, and of course the word that she uses to describe the present is the foreseeable quantum dawn. Of course, quantum theory being a, a much more modern, even post-Einsteinian theory uh, of physics and, and the workings of the universe. So bring all of that forward into the foreseeable quantum dawn, shielding opalescent fog. This foreseeable quantum shield fog opalescent. 
Lauterbach is getting to show off here a little bit. She's not writing in formal meter, but she's showing us that her language is well thought out. And these words are, as my English teachers used to say in junior high, 50 cent words. They're, they're these. She's showing us she knows the word quantum and opalescent. Opalescent is also one of these words that's just very fun to say. And shielding opalescent fog, you feel like your lips are getting a workout. It's one of the nice things about contemporary free verse. Words that together wouldn't work in a regular meter in free verse you can put together and give the mouth itself a, a visceral exercise that also is meaningful. Bring days by the road over which cats run into the evening in diagonal cat shapes. Now, I've been expecting invocations of traditional images or traditional tropes within poetry, and she gives us this cat running down the road in diagonal cat shapes. This isn't as explicit a reference, I think, to poetry as, of course, the vernacular or the the gods or girl change into a tree. But if I had to guess, somewhere hanging out with this cat is the poetry of Carl Sandburg. Carl Sandburg has the famous line that, that was published, I think it's 1912, that his book, uh, Chicago Poems, comes out. The fog comes on little cat feet, he says. The, the cat, of course, will show up here and there in poetry. But I get the feeling that Carl Sandburg is hanging out here. And, and I feel like Carl Sandburg has already nudged his way in, even in the first line, with the huge vernacular. Carl Sandburg, at the beginning of his poem on Chicago calls it the city of broad shoulders. There's this big, burly hugeness to Sandberg's poetry. It is a very vernacular poetry. And the fact that a cat just showed up makes me think, aha, Lauterbach is invoking Sandberg and Ovid together as one. And in this next line, we'll get another famous American vernacular poet, Whitman. Please also send Whitman's 90 sorrowing words from which to choose as I do not. So Whitman, also known for huge vernacular, he has these very long free verse lines, especially in Song of Myself, quite a burly poem that, and a very vernacular poem to the point where when it was first published in 1855, people were not sure about it. Emily Dickinson famously was warned against reading Whitman because he was too vulgar and common. It was thought unseemly by a friend of hers for women to read such poetry. And so our great poet Dickinson did not read our other great poet, her great contemporary, Whitman, during her lifetime. I like to think that perhaps in some afterlife, Dickinson is able to sit down with Whitman and read his poetry, but I will not speculate on such things. Please also send Whitman's 90 sorrowing words. Now, if we're talking about Whitman, we usually think about his democratic poetry, Celebration of America. But if we say Whitman's 90 sorrowing words, we're put in mind of another famous approach to poetry that Whitman has, which is his mournful poems, his poems of grief and sort of celebratory grief of Lincoln. When lilacs last in dooryard bloomed, his O Captain, My Captain, these poems that were published in, in a little section of Leaves of Grass called Memories of President Lincoln. So this is not just Whitman, the massive democratic vernacular Whitman. This is the Whitman who is mourning over Lincoln, who is seeing an America that's not just an America to celebrate, but an America that breaks his heart. 
then we get into the second part of the poem, which I think has odd diction, and I want to puzzle through it as we close. Whitman's 90 sorrowing words from which to choose. As I do not, I do not know where the horizon is located night or day to furnish with cantilevered messages from creatures yet unnamed in the animate gusts waiting for speech that is a wonder thing. This whole poem has been looking backwards to vernacular English poetry, to Ovid, to Sandberg, to Whitman. And as the diction gets more complicated, it begins to look toward the future. And this is a future of uncertainty but possibility. I do not know where the horizon is located day or night to furnish. So I is on one line, then do not know is the next line. Then where the horizon is is the line after that. And then located night or day to furnish is the next line. The sentences are broken in the middle of their main phrases and clauses to the point where it's dizzying. And I think one of the things that Lauterbach may be doing here is with her line breaks, with her formal choices, she's creating in the reader the confusion that she's expressing as the poet. I don't know where the horizon is. Where are things stopping? Where are things beginning? We wonder that with her lines and her sentences here. But if you just called all of poetic history into the present, into the quantum uh, dawn, remember it's a quantum dawn shielding opalescent fog. This is a quantum dawn where we can't see clearly. The future is, is hard to see. And she's saying, I don't know where the horizon is located night or day to furnish with cantilevered messages from creatures yet unnamed we keep getting these ideas we don't yet have the names we don't yet see where the borders are or where where we're even headed but this poem ends in hope often poems that talk about confusion end in despair but this poem ends yet unnamed in the animate gusts waiting for speech that is a wonder thing. Now, the phrase a wonder thing is italicized. And I found that there was a book in the 90s called The Wonder Thing, which is a, apparently a riddle book for kids that celebrates water, but apparently never names the water. I don't know if that's what she's referring to. The phrase itself is gorgeous, and it's explicitly not water here. It's speech that is a wonder thing. And after all this invocation, after all this calling forward, which itself is an act of speech, of course, the poet finds themselves waiting for speech, waiting in the present with the weight of the past upon them for speech. And that speech, in a very hopeful claim, will hopefully be something that will be a thing of wonder. It's easy sometimes to start to get ready to write, to get all hyped up, to, to read poetry you love or think about the poets of the past and get all inspired to write. And then you sit down and you think, oh gosh, what do I write? And all of a sudden the inspiring past becomes a weight upon you and you don't know what you could contribute. I find that my creative writing students often feel that. But I like that Lauterbach in a very 
free contemporary way is giving us hope. Look, that speech that you're waiting for, having called all the past and all tradition to you, that speech can be a thing of wonder. It's easy to think if we look at the past, all the great things have been done. And every age has to deal with that. And poetry, lyric poetry in particular, can be a place where we can meditate on the weight of that and hopefully continue to encourage ourselves and others that there still can be new and wonderful speech that maybe in in ages in the future people will look back to and be inspired by and feel responsible to. This has been the Poetry Corner podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you have any questions or comments, you can contact us at poetrycorner at saintconstantine.org.